Pentecost means the 50th day, or the feast of the 50th day. And when they come to Mount Sinai, God told them, there's something you have to remember. See, in every feast, God told them there's something you need to remember. For example, on the Sabbath, he said on the Sabbath day, you have to remember that God created the heavens and the earth and everything, and rested on the seventh day. At Passover, you have to remember how you were slaves in Egypt. At each one of these experiences, they had to remember how they had nothing to eat. They had to remember how they had nothing to drink. And when they came to Mount Sinai, God says, you have to remember how I gave you the law and the statutes and the ordinances there and why he did it. <clears throat> so they had a feast remembering these things. In Israel, there were seven feasts. There was Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, which are all part of the first feast. Then in 50 days, there was a feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest, it's called, the Feast of Ingathering. Then in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, was the blowing of trumpets. Then came the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the end of the harvest year. Now, all these things are important to us because we're coming to the time of harvest, the end of the harvest season, which is the seventh month of God. Whatever that means. It means that the earth is complete. The harvest, the harvest time has come. So in the blowing of trumpets, there's an announcement of the Day of Atonement. And there's a celebration in the Feast of Tabernacles. But that's the final harvest time. So each one of these feasts speaks to us of harvest. Now there was peculiar things about the Feast of Passover. And one was this, this last part of the feast. There was the feast of Passover where they killed the Passover and put the blood on the lintels and doorposts. Then there was the eating of the Passover lamb. Then there was the eating of the unleavened bread because they couldn't eat leavened bread. They had to put all the leaven out of their tents so that no leaven was found anywhere in their camp. Now that leaven speaks about malice and wickedness. And Jesus said of the, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is false teaching and hypocrisy. So that's all leaven. Malice, wickedness, false teaching, hypocrisy, that's all leaven. So he said that in the first day they had to put all leaven out of their house. Get rid of all that stuff. Then after they had swept the tents, and got everything out that they could find. And the, and the women and the children went through and swept and swept and swept. And so there wasn't even a tiny piece of leaven left. Then the father had to take a candle and go through and make sure that all the leaven was gone. Now this is just Passover. This is just Passover. God said that he was going to come with his candle and search out Jerusalem. So... All leaven has to be put out of your house at Passover. Now, the last part of that feast, which was the feast following the Sabbath day, was called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, let me show you how this works out. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was put in the ground the first day of unleavened bread, and he was resurrected early on Sunday morning in the Feast of First Fruits. 
1 Corinthians 15, it says Christ, the first fruits. So he is the first fruits. But in order to keep the feast, they had to bring the first fruit of the harvest into the house of God. So they went out in the fields before the main harvest. And in every field, there's always a little bit of grain that comes ripe before the rest. The main harvest may not be quite ripe, but there's a head here and a head there 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 that comes to maturity before the rest. So in this feast of first fruits, they had to go into the fields and they had to pull up a head here and pull up a head there 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 until they made a sheaf out of that. Then they brought that sheaf into the house of God and waved it before the Lord. It was called the sheaf of the wave offering. Now, the problem is that in the wilderness here, there's no harvest. Because they couldn't plant. There was no water here. There was no fields there. This is just rocks and stones. and There was no place to plant here. So they could not keep the feast of Passover in its entirety in the wilderness. They had to harvest the land of Canaan in order to bring even the first fruits of the harvest in. Now, these are all significant. When we, when we begin to sum it up, you'll see how these things all talk about the harvest, which is the end time. But Jesus said, the end time is the harvest and the reapers are the angels. So they, they, kept, they kept this, this time of God's manifestation here at Mount Sinai on the 50th day. They couldn't keep the Feast of Pentecost there. They, they was given the manifestations of Pentecost, but they couldn't keep it because this is a harvest feast. And this was where the main harvest was gone. He said, after you enter into the land in which I'm giving you and harvest its land, then you shall bring the first fruits of the grain offering into the house of God, and there you're to grind it very fine and make two loaves with leaven and bring them into the house of God. So those things are very, very significant. So there's no way they could keep the feast there. But this was what they were celebrating, how God gave them the law and all that at Mount Sinai. But they couldn't keep the feast until they entered into land. Now Christ was crucified on Passover. He was put in the ground the first day of unleavened bread. And then he was resurrected first fruits. He fulfilled the feast of Passover precisely. After he was resurrected, he walked with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he told them, go in Jerusalem and tarry until you be endued with power from on high. They went in and tarried 10 days. 40 and 10 is 50, isn't it? So, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one place of one accord. And the Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind, just like here. And the whole place began to shake where they were seated, just like here. And then tongues of fire came down and set upon them, just like here. Then they all began to speak, glorify God in other languages. So, this was perfectly fulfilled exactly to the minute. 
Jesus was crucified on Passover, put in the ground the first day of unleavened day, resurrected first fruits, walked with the disciples for 40 days. On the, on the 50th day, the Holy Spirit come. The thing is that Jesus had to ascend unto the Father and receive from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on the day of Pentecost. Now, what they were remembering here was how God gave them the law, how God gave them the statutes and the ordinances. Now, listen to what the new covenant says. Behold, days are coming, saith God, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with the fathers in the day I brought them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke, even though I was a husband unto them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I'll make after those days, saith God. I'm going to take away the heart of stone, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. Then I'm going to put my laws in their mind, and upon their heart I'll write it. Then I'm going to put a new spirit within them. Then I'm going to put my spirit within them, and I'm going to cause them to walk in my way so they'll be careful to keep my statutes and my ordinances and do them, for I will forgive their sin, their iniquity will remember no more. In that day, you'll not have need of every man to teach his neighbor and teach his companion and say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. They shall all be taught of God. So this, this is the fulfillment. This is where God made covenant with Israel, right there. That covenant was called the law. Now it's here in the New Testament that God makes covenant with us. He brings us into the new covenant. Takes away the heart of stone, gives us the heart of flesh. Puts, our, puts these laws in our mind and writes them upon our heart. He doesn't write them on stone anymore. He writes them on the fleshly tablets of human hearts, doesn't he? That's where the law is, here and there. But what if you can't read them? What if you can't interpret them? He puts his spirit within us so we can learn to read those laws and interpret the laws. Now, if you walk according to those laws that's here, you don't need outward laws. You don't need an objective set of rules if you've got a subjective kingdom within us. So at Mount Sinai, he did all those things. Now there was the feast of the seventh month, which was the final harvest when all the fruit and everything was gathered in. And when that harvest began, they blew the trumpets. And prepared for that harvest. When they, all the harvest was brought into the house of God. They blew the trumpets. And then immediately following that. There was a day of atonement. Right following that. There was the feast of tabernacles. So Jesus was crucified on Passover. He's put in the ground the first day of unleavened bread. And he was resurrected first fruits. Then he walked with the disciples for 40 days. On the 50th day, the Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind, exactly like this. And so the first four feasts were exactly fulfilled, exactly according to the pattern. Now, if the first four feasts were exactly fulfilled according to the pattern, how many could believe the next three feasts will be fulfilled exactly according to the pattern? See, Jesus said the end time is the harvest, the reapers are the angels. 
And he said, when the harvest is ripe, he immediately puts in the sickle and reaps. So since we're sitting here, we know the harvest is not ripe. All right? Harvest not ripe yet. Because if the harvest was ripe, he'd put in the sickle and reap. He, he's a farmer. He don't let it go to waste. When it comes to maturity, he puts in the sickle, he reaps. The harvest doesn't begin with the planting. The harvest begins when the grain has come to maturity and they put in the sickle and reap. So we go out and sow and sow and sow and sow and sow and say we're in the harvest. Right? No, all we're doing is planting the harvest. Until that harvest comes to full maturity and, and ready to bring into the house of God, the harvest is not complete. What you find is that the harvest is in three parts. There's the first fruits, then the main harvest, and then the gleanings, when all the rest of the harvest was brought in. So the harvest at the end time was in three parts. First fruits, main harvest, and then the gleanings, the final gathering in of all the fruit and everything into the barns of God. Now, when you see that, when you, when you understand that, then it makes the book of Revelation begin to make sense. When you see it, there's three harvests there instead of one. You know, in the book of Revelation, you find the tribulation beginning in chapter 6. Then you find the tribulation ending in chapter 11. Then you see the tribulation beginning in chapter 13. And you see the tribulation ending in chapter 19 with the white throne judgment. So when you teach it, when you teach it consecutively, it's total confusion. But if you see, there's two tribulations, or the tribulation is being seen from two different viewpoints, and both visions are seen at the same time. Chapter 5, that chapter 13 lays over chapter 5. See? So you see two, two visions of the same harvest taking place. Then you see the first fruits, and you see the main harvest in chapter 7, and you see the gleanings. You also find it in the other half also. But one speaks about the church, the other speaks about Israel. One's in Israel, one's out of Israel. Okay. <clears throat> so now, they've been here for one year. They've camped at Mount Sinai for one year. And God told them, you've camped at this mountain long enough. Time to go. So, after one year... They kept Passover there in Egypt. Now, before they left Mount Sinai, they had to keep Passover. But some of the people weren't clean. That's incredible. Isn't it? It's incredible. So they couldn't keep it in the first month. <laughs> they couldn't keep it as it was prescribed. Now, it was only an 11-day march from here to Canaan. Just 11 days. So they could have easily walked out in 11 days, according to the Bible. But some people weren't clean, and they lost time. Then some rabble amongst them, it says. Some rabble amongst them. 
began to complain of adversity. The fire of God broke out among them. They wasted more days. Then Miriam and Aaron rose up against Moses. They lost another seven days. And so when you follow them from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea, here, you see it was only an 11-day march, but they came into the wilderness there, Kadesh Barnea, in the 46th day. And Moses told them in Deuteronomy 1, go right on in. God has given you the land. Don't delay. Go right in. God has given you this land. They said, we think we ought to send in spies. So we know how to go up. We know how the cities are and how the people are and how big they are and how big their cities are and all that. So they went in and spied out the land for 40 days. And God said, for every day you spy the land, you'll wander in the wilderness for one year. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone who was over 20 years old at the time, carcasses, fell in the wilderness. Now, we want to make application. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. We need to keep the feast now. Not with the leavened bread of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Then, we need to be baptized in water. Because it's in baptism in water that God separates us from, from Egypt. In the baptism in water, he separates us from the authority of Pharaoh. And he brings us under the authority of Jesus Christ. As long as you're in the orange, you're, you're under the authority of Pharaoh. Even if you've said, I've been saved. You're still under the authority of Pharaoh. Because you haven't left that land. So at water baptism, we come under a new authority in our life. And this represents a death and a burial to that old life. And this represents a resurrection into a different kind of a life under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we need to begin to eat the manna from heaven. Because that's a part of our salvation. To eat from the word of God. The living word of God. Not black words on white paper. But to eat from the living word of God the, the God, the, the, the bread which come down out of heaven to give life to the whole world. We need to eat from him. Then we need to drink the water from out of the rock. We need to, be, we need to drink of the spirit. Because it's in the drinking of the spirit that something begins to flow out of us. He said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Then they come down here. Now here, God told them, the, the enemies you see today, you'll not see them henceforth and forever. For I, Moses said, be still and see the salvation of God. So there was salvation by the blood. There was salvation by the water. Then there was salvation by the bread. Then there was salvation by the water out of the rock. Then they came down here and Amalek attacked them. And Moses went up on the mountain, up on a hill. And as long as he held up his hands, Joshua was the leader of the army, Israel prevailed. When he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. 
So Aaron held his hand up as long as he could, and he hold, couldn't hold him up anymore. So Aaron and Ur came and stood on each side and held his hands up. And as long as his hands was in the air, Joshua prevailed, Amalek was defeated. And that day they got saved. Didn't they? They got saved by the blood, they got saved by the water, they got saved by the man, they got saved by the water, and they got saved through prayer from the enemy. See, many people say, once you go through here, the Red Sea, all your enemies are gone. Right? Because they all drowned in the Red Sea. That's true, you don't see those enemies anymore. But there's enemies the whole way here. And when you get here, there's giants in the land. See? This is not easy. See? It's battling the whole way. See? Every step you take, somebody, somebody challenges that step. So at Mount Sinai, so many things took place, which is all a picture for us of Pentecost. Now, the Pentecostal people say, when you speak in tongues, you got it, right? We got it. You got the initial evidence. Thank God for it, but you got the initial evidence. If you examine all the things that happened at Mount Sinai, you see what the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. See, you can talk in tongues, but if you don't have the laws in your mind and upon your hearts, how are you going to walk with God? If you can't interpret the statutes and the ordinances, how are you going to obey God? See? If you haven't had a renewed heart in here, if your heart's still a heart of stone, then out of that old heart comes what? All kinds of fornication and blasphemies and envies and strife and jealousy and, and all that stuff Jesus said comes out of the heart. So the heart has to be changed. And when you go through the, the, all these things in Mount Sinai, you can see the fullness of what God wants to do at, at Mount Sinai, at our baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's tremendous. And we haven't touched very much of it yet. Not very much. Now, here we see what happens. They, they go three days journey and there was rebellion. I mean, the rabble began to complain about the hardship. I mean, you mean after God come down in power? After God manifested his, his earthquake and thick gloom and fire and, and whirlwind and all that, and there was such a, a manifestation of God that people feared and quaked? Right after that, the rabble began to complain of adversity? Sure. Now, if you stand up here from God's viewpoint and look down on this whole scene from where you're sitting, you can see God's end from the beginning, can't you? See? You know where God wants to bring them. He brought them from here in order to bring them here. Now, when we look down and we see all the problems that they're facing as they come down here and we see their reaction. To God. We say, who are these people? How could they be so ignorant? Can't they see where God wants to bring them? See, from, from God's viewpoint, I didn't say stupid. From God's viewpoint, <laughs> from God's viewpoint, if we're seated with Him in the heavenly places and we look down, we can say, well, 
there's only 11 days journey. Let's, let's get in there. Because you can't keep Pentecost here. God wanted them to keep Pentecost in Canaan. See? Because he kept Passover here. It was 50 days now until Pentecost. And they had to enter into Canaan in order to harvest the land to bring the first fruits of the grain offering into the house of God. So they camped here on the 46th day. Then they sent spies in who spied out the land for 40 days and Pentecost come and went. And they missed the whole kingdom aspect of Pentecost. And died in the wilderness. So where is the majority of the church walking? They're wandering and wandering and wandering and wandering around. A lot of them haven't even crossed the Red Sea. A lot of them don't have any idea what the manna is about. They haven't even come to the, to the water out of the rock. They wouldn't have the first idea of how to battle Amalek. And they come down here and they say, well, we're afraid of the mountain. Don't, we don't want nothing to do with that mountain. I mean, talking in tongues, that's weird. See? They don't want nothing to do with that. But that's only primary. There's a whole life of Pentecost ahead of us. And this is the harvest feast that can only be participated in and kept in the kingdom. This is a picture of the kingdom of God right here. Now let me explain one thing. We got about a few minutes here. There was a river running down through here called the Euphrates River. And Abraham was over here in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is around where Babylon is now, where Iraq, Iran in there. And so while he was a heathen, God called him and said, come out to a land I'll show you. So this heathen, Abraham, Abram, he left Ur of the Chaldees and came down and crossed over the Euphrates River. And when he got about here, it says, Abraham the Hebrew. Before he was just a heathen. Then he became the Hebrew. You know what the word Hebrew means? Water crosser. The water crosser. And so until he crossed through the Euphrates River, he couldn't be a Hebrew. Right? He had to be a water crosser to be a Hebrew. All right, now he came down here in the land of Canaan, and there was Abraham, and then there was Isaac, and then there was Jacob, and then there was Joseph, and Joseph went down here. They were down here for 430 years, and they could have crossed right over right here on land and come up here. Or they could have come across the land and come down here. But they didn't. Why? Had to cross the water. They had to be Hebrews. So God brought them down here and they crossed over the water because God had called the Hebrews out. Now they come down here and they, they come up here and refuse to go in. They didn't have to cross over water here, did they? They'd crossed over water here. So they come up here and they didn't go in, and so they wandered and wandered and wandered and wandered in the wilderness. They all died. 
Then Joshua was going to take him into Canaan. How come he didn't take him in right there? That's where God first told him to go in. They had to be water crossers, right? So he brings them up here to the Jordan and takes them in there. Because this land is for the Hebrews, the water crossers. So now, we're the heirs of Abraham through faith, right? We're heirs of Abraham, what? The Hebrew. <laughs> By faith. So, if we're going to be participants in Abraham in the promise, we have to be water crossers. So, crossing the water is not an option if you're going to participate in the kingdom of God. You have to be a water crosser. So, God has a whole land here now waiting to be possessed. But these people, and it's called the land of rest. It's called the Sabbath rest. So they didn't go in. They could not rest. They had to wander the rest of their life. They never, ever come into rest. Because it says that God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Then in Psalms, it says, there's a rest for the people of God. So... The writer of Hebrews says, now we see that Joshua didn't give them rest when he took them in here. So there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And those who have ceased from their own labor and entered into his, enter into rest. So in the kingdom, we cease from doing our own thing, to do God's thing. And God calls it rest. When you do God's will, like we showed on the pole, when you do God's will, you're entering into rest. You're no longer struggling and struggling and struggling. You're entering into the rest of God. But the rest is in Canaan. There's no rest here. The rest is there, isn't it? This is a picture for us of the kingdom. It may seem difficult because with many tribulations we enter into the kingdom of God. Don't say the kingdom is here, the kingdom is there, over here it is, over there it is. Behold, the kingdom of God is in here. The kingdom of, this is where God wants to begin his kingdom work, establishing the throne of God in our life. Now when the throne of God is there, so many things are available. Do you know that the seven spirits of God stand before the throne of God? Did anybody ever wonder why you didn't get a full anointing of the seven spirits of God? There's no throne there. When the throne of God is, is established as the government of God in your life, the seven spirits of God the seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit, come right and stand before that throne. We wonder why certain people have such a tremendous anointing and other people just can't get it. it. Begins with the throne in your heart. Now in Revelation 21, it says this river of life, 
flows from where? The throne of God. Then what's on it both sides? The tree of life. See? You see how all these things are types and shadows and, and are exact pictures for us of God's unfolding revelation for our life. This is where the church is. A lot of the church is still in Egypt. Some of the church has passed over here across the Red Sea. <clears throat> I was telling uh, somewhere I was at <clears throat> about I was working in a factory and I found out there was a Christian there who was a preacher. So I went up to him to shake his hand tell him I was a Christian. So I went to shake his hand and he said, how are you baptized? <laughs> because they realized that, that baptism is important, see? But you have to be baptized by a certain form in a certain way. But, uh, so they come, they come a ways. They even probably were participating in the manna from heaven. I don't know whether they're drinking water out of the rock or, or just drinking rock. You know, I couldn't tell. But, but they rejected this. They rejected God's power and deliverance and everything that comes at Mount Sinai. Now, there are Pentecostal churches that want to, want to talk about Pentecost and the, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power and all that. It's all good. There's nothing wrong with that. But to stand here and talk about the power and the gifts and this and that, when God wants us up here, is falling short of the grace of God. So the Pentecostal movement, while they've restored many, many things, haven't restored the gospel of the kingdom. They're still preaching the gospel of salvation and not yet the gospel of the kingdom. So salvation here met Israel's need, right? Because they were in bondage, they were in slavery. Pharaoh was mistreating them. So when they passed over, it met their need. They were no longer slaves in Egypt. But they were no longer citizens, they weren't yet citizens of Canaan. See? So they stopped before they got to the fulfillment of God's plan. The charismatic movement restored a lot. But many of these people fell out here and started to wander. Some of these people fell out here and started to wander. Some fell out there and there and there. Most of the people now are wandering. Wandering and wandering and wandering. And they're saying, what is the next move of God? See? The next move of God is entering into the kingdom of God. Beginning to participate in the kingdom. But we have now a structure where you hire somebody to do the will of God in your place. You call him the pastor. See? So, why should we do the will of God? We've already hired this guy to do the will of God for us. Right? But the, the church is never going to come in to participate in the kingdom until everybody does the will of God. Because it's an eternal principle in heaven. Nobody's going to participate in the eternal purpose of God who doesn't do the will of God. So Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not a strange thing. Because that eternal cross has to come into our life. 
And this is why Israel failed right here. When we do the tabernacle, we'll see repentance from dead works, faith toward God. We'll see the lamb on the altar. We'll see the labor here. We'll see the changing of the garments. We'll see the anointing here at Mount Sinai. The next experience in the, in the tabernacle will be the consecration offering, which is right here. Nobody could participate in this that didn't do the will of God. So they failed at the consecration offering, where everybody gives themselves to totally do the whole will of God, and they begin to wander and wander. So until the church comes back to the consecration offering, and everybody in the church begins to say, okay, I'll do the whole will of God. I don't care what it costs. I don't care where it takes me. I'm going to do it. Then God begins to work the throne in your life. He begins to put that cross in your life. See, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother, wife, farms, lands, children, uh, and your own life also, you can't be my disciple. See? Those are all valid demands of the kingdom of God. But people say, well, nobody told us when we were here there were any demands. Nobody told us here any more than just get baptized. See? When you come down here, nobody told us anything about demands of the kingdom. They just told us, receive the Holy Spirit, let the Holy Spirit have an expression out your mouth. Nobody told us about any demands. Well, that may be true. But now we have to tell people there are demands of the kingdom. There are impossible demands. Impossible for the natural man. You read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you'll see. There's not a chance, not one chance, the natural man is ever going to fulfill the demands of the kingdom. But with the new covenant provision, if you're willing to lay down your life, you can receive his life. See? If you're willing to lay down the suke, you can receive the zoe. And it's out of the zoe life that you fulfill the purpose of God.